Saudi Arabia is having a, a, quote, Jekyll and Hyde moment. There's a push forward, there's freedom, but there's also a push back. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Right now, a group of 14 imaginative artists have ventured into a remote red rock-lined desert to create a strange kind of wonderland. Sensory delights abound, like a nest of gigantic Arabic letters that you can walk into and explore. It sounds like a lot of fun, doesn't it? Unfortunately, it's a bit more complicated than that. Called Desert X Al-Ula, it is a collaboration between the American art nonprofit Desert X and the Saudi Arabian government, which has lavishly paid for the exhibition to be brought into being. Collaborating with the Saudi government is not the easiest way for a Western art organization to win a popularity contest these days, particularly in the wake of the gruesome 2018 slaying of the Washington Post columnist and dissident Jamal Khashoggi, purportedly at the order of Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. As a result, Desert X Al-Ula has predictably incited a firestorm of criticism, but pan out a little bit. And you'll find that this exhibition is hardly a one-off bit of cultural whitewashing, but instead a piece of a far larger, extraordinarily ambitious plan for Saudi Arabia to remake not just its image, but its entire way of life. To find out what's going on here, I'm joined on the podcast today by the veteran journalist and former Harper's Bazaar art editor-in-chief, Rebecca Ann Proctor, who recently traveled to Desert X Al-Ula and covered it for Artnet News. Thank you very much for coming on The Art Angle, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. So before we get to where things are now, let's take a step back. Because when most people in the West think of Saudi Arabia, they think of a vast and closed-off monarchy, the sacred home of Mecca and Medina, where a fundamentalist version of Sharia law holds sway, where dissidence is brutally repressed, and where women have limited rights. They certainly don't think of a thriving contemporary art scene. So historically speaking... What has Saudi Arabia's art scene been like? Very much correct, Andrew. Saudi Arabia has long had an image problem, and it's an image problem that the entire kingdom is is very much aware of. In terms of the art scene, what people don't also realize is that is that the art scene has long existed. For the last fifty, you know, fifty even sixty years, there's been artists who've been practicing in Saudi Arabia, and it was very much an art scene that's been led by the artists themselves and a few wealthy patrons that were very much uh, separate from the government. For example, in 1968, female artists Sophia bin Zagar and Munira Musli jointly held the first public art exhibition in the kingdom. And in 1990, Princess Jawahar bint Majid bin Abdulaziz Al Saud established the Al-Mansuriya Foundation to support art and culture. When we get to around, I'd say, the early 2000s and 2003, you have Edge of Arabia. And I'd really see that as a turning point. Edge of Arabia was established after a chance encounter between British artist and entrepreneur Stephen Stapleton and Saudi artists Ahmed Matar and Abdul Nasser Garam. There's a lot of artists who've come from this region. And together with the support from the Jamil family, the Jamil family has done a lot to support the arts, including the Saudi Art Council in Jeddah. They established several exhibitions around Saudi Arabia, but also internationally. So I see the Edge of Arabia really being sort of a kickstarter in terms of the contemporary art scene. In 2014, the Saudi Art Council was set up by a number of patrons in Jeddah to promote art and culture throughout the kingdom. And it was that that sort of paved the way for growth of an you know, an arts and culture scene through initiatives that were very much nonprofit. What a lot of people don't realize is that at the, the beginning stages, 
is separate from a government-led kind of led mm-hmm. initiative, which we've only seen recently, only a few years ago with the MISC Foundation. So, the, yeah, exactly. This is, this is all private sector innovations and entrepreneurship that is really lifting the, the Saudi art scene historically. And then more recently, the government has started to get involved. Why did that happen? Yeah, and that's a great question. You know, why is suddenly Saudi Arabia so focused on on art and culture? A lot of people see this as a propagandistic aims by the government to control the art and culture scene and to control, in some ways, people's idea of creative expression. But I think it goes a lot beyond that. Saudi Arabia is weaning itself off oil. What it's realized is that you know, oil is it's not going to be there forever, and crisis is looming. If they realize that. Learning art and culture can also really help with technology, can help with science, it can help with entrepreneurship, with leading organizations. A lot of the discussions I've had with people, for example, even at Saudi Aramco and and Ithra, Ithra is the museum, the King Abdulaziz Center for World Culture, which opened two years ago. They really believe that creativity is at the heart of Saudi Arabia's future. And without that creativity, without people really learning um, and studying art and culture, you're not going to have a thriving economy. So they need to diversify the economy in order to in order to survive. So at the same time that these kinds of macroeconomic trends are happening, you have somebody of a very young generation coming into power. And this, of course, is Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Amid this push for a vibrant cultural scene, as you mentioned, MBS, as he's universally known, is also pushing for social reforms. He's curtailing the powers of the religious police. He's giving women the right to drive. He's allowing music to be played in public for the first time. (laughs) But simultaneously with this, there have been all of these troubling signs. The crackdowns on dissidents have actually intensified when he came to power in 2018. He purportedly was the one who ordained the Khashoggi murder. So how do you square this kind of brutality and repression with this push for cultural openness and engagement? That's a really tough question. It's the question that's on everyone's lips at the moment. Journalists who work at Arab News or other Saudis in the country, they've admittedly said that Saudi Arabia is having a, a quote, Jekyll and Hyde moment. There's a push forward, there's freedom, but there's also a push back. Recently, I was, in, I was in the office of Arab News in Riyadh, and one of the journalists was telling me that she felt that there is actually more freedom under King Abdullah. Recently, they feel that they have to be a bit more careful. And for the Saudis opening up and, and having dialogues about identity and heritage and, and staging contemporary art and expressing freely and, and having these important conversations is really crucial. People have waited for this moment for, for decades. In fact, someone I was recently in in um, in Abha um, a few months ago, and there was a man, he said, you know, we were told for 40 years that everything was haram. Haram means bad. Everything is bad. Now we're being told that none of this is haram. This isn't bad and we can live our life and we can go off. We can go have coffee with women in a a coffee shop and we can converse uh, freely. Change can't happen overnight. You're talking about a country that's been practicing political Islam, you know, Wahhabism for the last century. You know, the women no longer have to wear the niqab, but the women that I see who are still covered in the niqab, a lot of them don't want to take it off because they don't know anything else. So I think that there's a lot of hope that through the arts and through culture that people can be able to feel more comfortable with the change as well. I think it's important to point out that Saudi Arabia does not have a really entrenched institutional support system. The the first university was created in Saudi Arabia in 1947, and there hasn't really been a similar kind of 
art training, you know, artist school, curatorial training regimen available in Saudi Arabia that there might be in developed Western country. So it seems that MISC has been intentionally geared to lay this groundwork, to create the kind of training apparatus that could lift up a homegrown generation of artists and curators and administrators. You're completely right that it has not had a strong arts education system. And in fact, most of the contemporary artists who are practicing in Saudi Arabia right now are all self-taught. Saudi contemporary art is so fascinating because it is highly conceptual in nature. They've resulted in these works based on what they have available to use, found objects and a lot of video work, a lot of high-tech stuff. It's a way for them to express themselves in a situation when it was really difficult to express themselves. So in some ways, the repression actually, I wouldn't say it encouraged creativity, but it was sort of was something that they used to push off to get the message across in a more conceptual way. So how has Mohammed bin Salman supercharged the country's art scene? What is MISC exactly? Um, Mohammed bin Salman set up MISC in 2011 to enable young Saudis to learn, develop, and progress in the fields of education, culture, media, and technology. And it was when he was the, the governor of Riyadh. And he continues to be involved in MISC as the chairman of its board. MISC originally was directed by people who are very much part of the homegrown Saudi art scene, which are no longer involved anymore. MISC now is very much a government entity, as it was set up to be, and it's hosting around the country a variety of different art events that really try and teach art and culture to the local populace. In the villages, for example, I've seen examples where maybe people don't have a lot of art education, but MISC has gone in and been opening the doors to learning how to paint, to draw. But really, it's about Saudi heritage and Saudi pride. It's led by a mix of people maybe who don't have as strong a background in contemporary art, but definitely have a, an appreciation and a love for art. I read a, a sentence on Arab News about some of MISC's enterprises, and it says, the MISC Global Forum Art was of pivotal importance during the MISC Global Forum, which was organized by the MISC Initiative Center at the MISC Foundation. So, so MISC seems to be this completely multi-layered network of institutions that have emerged from entirely whole cloth. And it seems that is one of the ways that Mohammed bin Salman is really kind of laying out this new infrastructure. But in addition to MISC, he created a Ministry of Culture from scratch just last year. So who is the Minister of Culture in Saudi Arabia? And how does he fit into this whole story? So in 1962, the Ministry of Information was founded, and that was to be in charge of information and media. In 2003, it was renamed the Ministry of Culture and Information, including cultural affairs under its umbrella. So come June 2018, the creation of Saudi Arabia's Ministry of Culture appointed Prince Badr bin Farhan Al Saud, which many people will will recognize from his purchase of the, the Leonardo da Vinci's Salvador Mundi. Uh, he was the intermediary. As intermediary. So Prince Badr is its first minister of culture, which is a you know really fresh and new role and a very exciting institution. But uh, Prince Badr bin Farhan al-Saud was the governor of the Royal Commission for Alula, a post he held since the body was created in July 2017 to oversee archaeological and tourism projects in the government and the governorate of Alula, which is located in the Medina province. And that is where Desert X was recently held. In February 2019, it was announced that MBS had launched a major tourism project in Alula, which will also include a resort designed by French architect Jean Nouvel. 
So clearly there's massive and, and utter change on the culture front in Saudi Arabia, which is linked again to this desire to diversify from an oil-based economy. So we started this episode talking about Desert X Al-Ula and Prince Badr gets us back to that because before he was appointed the first minister of culture in Saudi Arabia, he was actually the governor of the Royal Commission for Al-Ula, which was charged with developing this 2,000-year-old historical site into this cultural destination. So what is the big deal with Al-Ula? What, what is this area? So Al-Ula is the 2,000-year-old historical site it was originally the site of the Nabataean culture. A lot of people will be familiar with the Nabataeans for their extraordinary tombs that were carved into huge rocks in Petra. And Hegra, the ancient city of the Nabataeans in Saudi Arabia's historic Alula Valley, is emerging now from the mists of time to take its rightful place, you know, as one of the world's wonders, really. And most people didn't even know Alula existed <laughs> until just uh, a few years ago. So it's sort of hewn from the rocks of the Hijaz in northwestern Saudi Arabia two, two millennia ago and lost for centuries. You know, it, it was a place where civilizations came to trade from East Africa to the Far East to the rest of the Middle East. It was a really a place where a variety of different cultures mixed and mingled through trade. And these spectacular rock tombs in the ancient city is becoming one of Saudi Arabia's major tourist attractions. And, and they're really capitalizing on it by doing a variety of different festivals and art exhibitions such as Desert X to bring people to, to Saudi and to Alula. But at the same time, is it true that this area is believed to be haunted? Isn't there some story that Muhammad himself commanded people not to go there? Yes, that is true. And a lot of Saudis still talk about it. As the story goes, Muhammad sent Madana Saleh to preach to the people of Thamud. So the people of Thamud occupied that particular part of Alula, and he preached to them not to believe in many different gods. Polytheism was practiced in you know, pre-Islam pagan society. Some believed him and some did not. And hence it became kind of designated as this place where there were jinn. Jinn in Arabic means evil spirits. So for a long time, it was forbidden to go into this place because of course, if people did not believe in, in the one God, then it was heresy. And now Desert X has come into this haunted kind of Bermuda Triangle of the desert with its Desert X Al-Ula edition. And as followers of this exhibition know that this, this is the third edition. The first two were very widely critically acclaimed. And then this third one has been pretty much critically reviled. So you were there. What is the way that the organizers are positioning it? How are they talking about Desert X Al-Ula and their decision to proceed with it? Well, yeah, Desert X has emerged under a real cloud of criticism. And it's incredible to see the, the power that the press has, particularly the Los Angeles Times, really ripping this initiative apart. Neville Wake, Wakefield, the artistic director of Desert X, I spoke with him at, at length, and you know he came to, to Alula several years ago and obviously a firm promoter of land art. He, he loved the area and the opportunity arose and he didn't want to turn it down, obviously. It was about bringing people together from different cultures in the name of art and creating unity through art, through land art. You know, he was talking to me about sort of the Desert X legacy is about continuing the dialogue that land art started in the 60s and the 70s. And now that whole dialogue is being transformed into a multicultural dialogue. It's, it's the idea that 
we believe in the power of art to connect people. And he has said that um, many times, this idea of cultural dialogue and bringing people together. And maybe multiculturalism right now is is the new hmm. is the new weapon, I think, in a world where we're living in increased borders and, and struggling to kind of deal with a variety of different identities, cultural identities. And this event was really staged against many odds. Do you find them to be sincere in this explanation that they want to connect people, that they think art is something that should build bridges and not walls and that it's not a political statement? I do think that that is sincere. I think that it was a very brave action. The more I, I spoke with the artists, the more I listened to their stories, particularly the 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 artists who came from Los Angeles that I wrote about in, in the Artnet article, a lot of them were distanced also by some friends, by family members. They said, how could you create work for an exhibition in Saudi Arabia? You know, this is terrible. You're going against democracy or what you believe in. And and it, it was tough. I, I And obviously Neville has faced a huge amount of criticism for this. Why would you stage a, a beautiful art event in the midst of this cloud of 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 murder and and human rights abuses and real challenges. Sure, there is money involved, but they had a very short amount of time to put the art together. Obviously, it's challenging to stage a land art exhibition. It's a really rough terrain. The artists had about two months to put it together, and it's not an easy place to stage the artwork. But they came together and they did it. One of the artists, uh, Lita Albuquerque, told me that she, you know, she went away and she actually decided for three days that she would not participate. And... Then she became really depressed and she thought, well, what am I doing? I have the opportunity to to go to Saudi Arabia to work with artists from the region that you know don't often have the chance to exhibit in, in the West or who aren't as well known. And I have the opportunity to create something beautiful and hopefully will bring people together. And I could really sense that there was a genuine pride in what they've done. So I, I, I disagree with um, the idea that Desert X is a propaganda arm for the government and that it's just staged there to show that there's a contemporary art and that it's you know flashy and fun. I think what the artist did is, is quite brave and probably some of them will still be criticized for what they've done. Um, other people see it as this amazing feat because you're going into an ancient land that really was in a cradle of civilization 2,000 years ago. And you're, you're bringing people together again in the same manner. And I think that's a beautiful thing. One argument I think that you could potentially make is that criticizing the art scene that is trying to grow up there and vilifying the entirety of Saudi Arabia and its cultural scene is a form of collective punishment. We're dealing with one person who is said to have ordered a murder of a journalist overseas, but why should the entirety of the country be blamed for it? And then I think there's another argument that is the entirety of the country is Mohammed bin Salman. Then how do you square the two? How do you, how do you make it so that you are not just dealing with one person here? That's the struggle. Uh, I don't believe that boycotting a culture where you have a very important young art scene, as we've differentiated, there's a young art scene that started before MISC and before MBS came onto the scene, you, you do need to separate them from some of the government ordeals. One of the artists openly told me they do not feel censored at all. Uh, there are certain things, certain parameters that you have to respect as an artist and, and as a journalist in, in the Middle East and, and particularly in the Gulf. But this one artist, you know, he actually said, why doesn't Ed Ruscha just come and, come and visit us and see what we do? And then he went on to tell me that, you know, Ed Ruscha 
has been officially acquired by the Obama administration and is now part of the White House art collection, which we all know very well. But he went on to also talk about the fact that, as as everyone knows in the Middle East, as everyone knows in the world, the Obama administration engaged in many drone strikes on wedding parties in Yemen and in Afghanistan. Thousands of innocent people were killed during these drone attacks. And there's, of course, the Iraq war. There's what happened in Libya. There's selective outrage, according to certain narratives. And that narrative seemed fine for America, right? It seemed fine until it has to do with Saudi artists. And he told me, Saudi artists, we're just trying to create our work. And then our work gets lumped into this narrative of being propagandistic or being just Saudi or being part of a government initiative. So I think it's really important and it's hard. It's really hard to separate a a people from its government. I think that it's really important to try and that's what Desert X has put on the table to have some sort of cultural empathy. There's a famous quote by Rumi that I think sums up the situation in in Saudi quite well. Beyond the ideas of right doing and wrong doing, there is a field, I will meet you there. It's the world full of things to talk about. It's not to say that what's right and wrong is not right and wrong, but I think that to ignore that there's an art scene, to ignore that there are artists who are just trying to practice, they're they're not being told what to do. They're still also struggling to have art shows or to get international representation to to show their work as uh, is in itself a, a wrongdoing. I think the question is, how do you define a genuine art scene as opposed to an art scene that is constructed as propaganda? And I think the Western answer to that question would be to say that it has to be critical of the people in power. Is that just not the way that somebody in Saudi Arabia would define a genuine art scene? I don't think they would define a genuine art scene as an art scene where artists have to be critical of the government or critical of of the powers that be. And that's why looking at art in the Middle East is so fascinating. You are looking at art in a country that has not had... um, that has not had the same freedoms or the same context that we have had in the United States of America or in Europe. They are expressing themselves under certain parameters. I recently had a talk the other day in Dubai with Manal al Duane, who's one of Saudi Arabia's best known female artists and who was also at Desert X. And she's done a lot of really edgy works, works that do challenge the status quo, do challenge the government. Sometimes they haven't even been able to be let back into Saudi Arabia. And she said, we do self-censor, just like journalists have to self-censor because there is a fear there. You want to push, but how much do you push when you're not told exactly what the rules are? And that's the problem. There are no exact rules there of what you can do or what you can't do. For me, a genuine art scene is defined by a grassroots group of artists that come together regardless of government structures or what's available. I think creativity is a human need and an art can come out of the most destitute and most challenging places. And how are we not to say that that's not genuine just because it doesn't criticize the powers to be? They are sending their message across in their own way. I think a very tricky question is how long will the West keep Saudi Arabia in this kind of pariah status? Is it going to be indefinite? That's another tough question. I do hope that the world can meet on a higher plane when it comes to art and culture and look at the artists that are creating work in Saudi and give them a chance. Yes, there is money from the government that's fueling these projects. At least there is a belief in creativity. What if there wasn't anything? 
what if the government was just pushing forward and, you know, there were no creative initiatives, there were no exhibitions. That would have been a whole different conversation, but at least there's something. And that's the start. And for me, that that signals hope. And that's something that's hard to say in, in the midst of this storm of criticism. A lot of PRs told me, they said, you know, it's just so difficult to get journalists to come to Saudi and, you know, they don't want to write about it. Or if the magazine covers Saudi, then it has to have a negative edge. There needs to be criticism in it. And so where, where, do, where do things stand? How can we move forward? I like to think that art is a way where people can find a common ground where people can try and solve some of these identity issues. You know, I think art has the power to bring people together. And whether it's in Saudi Arabia or if it's in another place that's challenging, I think the contemporary art scene with artists who are trying to express themselves within whatever parameters that they're given, I think is a good thing. Well, Rebecca, I think that we raised a lot of very complex and frankly fascinating questions that aren't going to be resolved anytime soon. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. The Art Angle is produced by Tim Schneider and Caroline Goldstein and edited by Nick Long. Thank you very much for listening and see you next week. <laughs>